Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. And um, so, yeah, let us try and talk about some good things tonight. Um, I know that some of you out there might be not feeling so great, uh, especially if you were just listening to what was on before me. And uh, if you know about what's happened today, let's let's just not even think about it. Let us put that in another pocket of our brains. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about science things and it's going to be okay, at least for 50 minutes. All right. So as always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page. Uh, which is evidence-based radio. And you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasedarada.com. Now, as I said, I want to start out with at least a little bit of temporary uh, good news. As these things work, it may not continue, but right now, victory is ours. A U.S. District Court judge has restored federal protections to around 700 grizzly bears living in and around Yellowstone National Park. This ruling actually cancels planned hunts already planned hunts in Wyoming and Idaho. So, of course, as the part of the continuing effort to destroy our country, uh, the Republican administration has been seeking to delist animals from the endangered species list, including the grizzlies of Yellowstone. Judge Dana L. Christensen stated that the ruling was based on the argument made by conservation groups and tribal organizations, which sued the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to protect the bears, that because the population has expanded but has not yet connected to other populations of grizzly bears along the Canadian border, it remains genetically vulnerable. The judge declared that the Fish and Wildlife had failed to consider this issue and also that its analysis of future threats was, quote, arbitrary and capricious, unquote. The service appropriately recognized that the population's genetic health is a significant factor demanding consideration, uh, she wrote. However, it misread the scientific studies it relied upon, failing to recognize that all evidence suggests that the long-term viability of the greater Yellowstone grizzly is far less certain, absent new genetic material. So, of course, part of the issue is that because the grizzlies had been uh, hunted for so long, at one point uh, back in the 70s when they were actually listed on the endangered species list, uh, they were down to about 200 animals, I think. And that's not that's not a great genetic uh, spread for a the rebounding of a species. Um, that is always a problem when you are bringing back species that have basically been brought to the brink of extinction, is that the genetic makeup of those individuals ends up not being particularly um, homogeneic. And so they end up with a lot of, um, I should say, heterogeneic. So they are a 
they are very, very closely related usually. And you need to have new genetic material coming into the population in order for you to be able to maintain genetic health. And so I'm very happy that uh, this ruling has come down. And of course, this is just another blow to the current Republican administration, which has lost a series of battles, uh, which have been trying to end protections for various parts of the environment. Uh, We're glad the court sided with science instead of states bent on reducing the Yellowstone grizzly population and subjecting these beloved bears to a trophy hunt, said Bonnie Rice, a senior representative with the Sierra Club, one of the organizations that sued. Changing food sources, isolation, inadequate state management plans, and other threats that grizzly bears continue to face warrant strong protections until they reach full recovery. So, uh, of course, this is the problem, is that these states that the grizzlies are in are pretty notorious for not really uh, prizing the environment over people. And so the states themselves if they don't have robust plans for the grizzlies, if you start to cull them when they haven't even really completely bounced back yet, you're just going to end up with a disaster again. So thank goodness for a judge who knew how to read the science and who was able to uh, make this seemingly to me at least commonplace uh, decision that you don't start letting people kill grizzly bears uh, until you can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are recovered and that it won't help or that it won't hurt them. Of course, just the fact that one would even want to hunt a grizzly bear is anathema to me, but obviously there are people out there and I will say that there are plenty of hunters who are great conservationists. Um, it's just a personal thing to me. I would never kill a bear unless my life was in danger. Um, I just think they're, you know, one of those sort of majestic beasts that you just leave alone. Um, you know, there's a whole series of jokes about, you know, what kind of animals are okay to kill and what aren't, but, uh, You know, I'm just going to say that for me, bears are off limits. (laughs) I would never kill a bear unless I, unless it was literally barreling at me and I had some way to kill it. Um, You know, if it was going to kill me, I would probably kill it uh, to save my own life. But that would be the only situation I can think of where I would do something like that. Um, Deer, on the other hand... There's so many deer and they are just a nuisance. So, uh, you know, deer hunters, I'm cool with that. (laughs) Um, You know, that is definitely one of those places where there are no shortage of deers. Deer are in no uh, danger of becoming endangered anytime soon. So again, not all hunters are bad. Uh, Plenty of people are out there doing perfectly reasonable hunting and they are very um, concerned about the environment and I'm totally on the same page as those people. Um, Except for, you know, if you're using sort of high caliber uh, rifles and things like that. Like if you're going to, if you're going to go deer hunting, you should no more than like a rifle or a shotgun. I would prefer if you did bow and arrow because then at least it's an actual challenge. 
but that's just me again. <laughs> uh, please refer to the views and opinions. <laughs> um, okay, so let's move on from uh, grizzly bears, even though they are adorable. It is one of those things, isn't it? Um, also, the idea of all of these fierce predatory animals that would really kill you almost almost by mistake most of the time. They're always so cute. <laughs> But uh, let's move on to a tale of the sea. So a 25-year research, excuse me, a 25-year search for the HMS Endeavor has possibly finally come to fruition. Now, um, a wreck has been found off the coast of Rhode Island, which the Rhode Island Marine Archaeological Project has declared is almost certainly the Endeavor. Now, the HMS Endeavor began life as a rather famous and important ship, which is why, you know, people are looking for it. <laughs> it took Captain Cook and the naturalist Sir Joseph Banks to Australia in 1770, where the explorers landed at Botany Bay and, quote unquote, discovered the continent. Now, obviously, Australia had been discovered tens of thousands of years before this by Aboriginal people. I mean, the Aborigines have been there for just so long. Um, and in fact, I don't have it for tonight, but there was a story that just came out, um, a research paper that just came out where they found new evidence for Aboriginal um, settlement in the interior of the uh, continent for much earlier than they thought. And of course, the interior interior of Australia is uh, <laughs> not exactly the most hospitable place, uh, at least from what I've heard. <laughs> um, now, unfortunately, this was the high point of the ship's journey. After returning to England, the ship was sold to a private owner and ended its life as a contracted troop transport and prison ship, having been renamed Lord Sandwich. Now, it's really interesting that it was renamed Lord Sandwich because actually uh, Cook, on one of his subsequent journeys to uh, the Pacific, he went to Hawaii and he actually named Hawaii the Sandwich Islands after his patron, Lord Sandwich. Um, and of course, things did not go, not go so well for him in Hawaii. Um, he was eventually killed in Hawaii. Uh, it was one of those sort of, uh, cliche stories where initially they think that, uh, the native Hawaiians probably thought that they were gods because they just happened to show up in a bay devoted to a goddess, um, on the day when they were celebrating that goddess. Um, and so <laughs> uh, this sea goddess and these people, you know, came from the sea. So initially they thought that they might be gods. At least this is the story. Um, but then once one of them died and they realized that, you know, these white men weren't gods, then things went south from there. <laughs> um but I just think it's really interesting because it didn't really, um, from what I was reading, there didn't seem to be a direct connection, but I just thought that was an interesting uh, connection there. So in 1778, the British actually deliberately scuttled the ship, along with a dozen others, to create a blockade in the Rhode Island Harbor uh, to keep out French ships during, um, you know, the the French and Indian War. Um 
And so the hunt began in 1993 when archaeologists and divers began searching 18th century maps and logs for a possible location for the wreck. They then set out to see what was there using side scan sonar. Now, this is back in 1993, so this is a long time ago at this point, uh, which is scary to me, but that's okay. Uh, so the process at this point was very uh, painstaking because this was before the advent of GPS. And so every hit required divers to go down and do ground truthing to see what was really showing up on the sonar. Now, some hits were modern vessels. Uh, some were geologic formations that just happened to look vaguely ship-like. Uh, some were piles of abandoned fishing tackle. And some were even apparently Navy training torpedoes. The remote sensing technology that most people identify as marine archaeology has has been only 2% of the work in Rhode Island. Remap divers and non-divers have done the other 98%, said Remap in a post on its website. And so by 2016, they had located 10 of the original 13 wrecks. What's really fascinating and amazing is that they had this access to all of these uh, uh, documents and historical charts. So all of these ships that they found were basically pretty much where the historical charts charts had suggested that they lay. Um, and so, you know, all of the ships are technically historically and archaeologically important. Um, but the search gained a boost in 1998 when a 200-year-old paper trail was discovered that definitively linked the Lord Sandwich to the HMS Endeavor. They all deserve careful investigation because of their importance to the history of the revolution. But of course, the international interest in it is the possibility that our, that remap might find the endeavor. Now, of course, I miss, I misspoke up above. Uh, it wasn't the French and Indian War. It was the Revolutionary War, of course. Um, sorry about that. Uh, don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> um, and so in 2016, a document was discovered that indicated a British officer named Lieutenant Knowles had scuttled the Lord Sandwich along with four other ships to protect a coastal gun battery north of one of the islands in Rhode Island Sound. And that would have been in 1778. Now, with this information combined with deep dives that they had done, the RIMAP and the Australian National Maritime Museum now believe they have narrowed the possibilities to one particular wreck. Now, the team has again benefited from a wealth of documentary evidence about these 13 ships. And because they have so much in information, they know, for instance, that most of them were built either in India or North America. And so therefore, they would have been using wood from either India or North America. However, the HMS Endeavor was built in Northern England, mainly using English oak. So by going down to the remains of the ship and taking samples of wood, if they find that those samples are English oak, that would be a very good suggestion 
to indicate that this was indeed the endeavor. Now, of course, much of the upper portions of all of these ships will have long since rotted away. Uh, most of them are represented mainly by a ballast pile. Um, and in fact, one of the radar soundings, you can see a modern ship that has uh, settled to the bottom on top of the ballast pile of a revolutionary era um, shipwreck, which is really interesting. And uh, so basically, you have these ballast piles, which are basically um, piles of rock uh, and other sort of debris that they would have had in the bottom of the ship to keep it uh, on keel. And uh, so basically, what you're looking for the, are the things that were buried in the silt underneath those ballast piles. So um, generally small artifacts and portions of the actual um, lumber for, from which the ships would have been made. Now, a scuttled ship would have been stripped of much of its valuables and personal effects uh, before it was scuttled because this wasn't something that was done um, completely out of the blue. They knew that this was going to happen and so they would take most of the, you know, all of the things that ha had any value off of it before they scuttled it. Um, but, you know, something always gets left behind or something is not deemed worthy of being taken off at the time, but of course is fascinating to archaeologists. And so, so far, uh, they found ceramic teapots, glass bottles, lead pieces from pumps, and bits of rope encased in concretions. Um, basically, when you have metal, there are uh, chemical processes that happen, and you get these sort of corrosion concretions around things. And so uh, the team hoped to begin excavations on the new wreck in 2019. And one of the things that they're really interested in is they are hoping to find some of those timbers from the ship because the ship was actually first designed as a coal scuttle. And uh, so it would have been refitted to become this research vessel. And so they're wondering if once it had been remodeled that way, if there's any evidence of that, and then if there's any evidence of it having been subsequently remodeled again later on in its life, because that would be really interesting to be able to kind of look at those differences along its lifetime. And of course, again, all of these ships are fascinating and interesting time capsules into uh, this time period, but sometimes having a name attached to you that is uh, in the history books is definitely something that will get people to take a closer and deeper look at you. Um, so hopefully they will find some really interesting things when they are able to dive on the ship next year. Okay, so let's take a short break from archaeology. We'll come back to it. Um, because, you know, it's a good time to live in the past. Um, so this is a really interesting scientific discovery that I just thought was really interesting. And um, I have a friend who's constantly talking about how, you know, the new frontier in pretty much all medicine is based on the gut. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I think that for many for many values of that, he's probably right. Um, but I think he does get a bit over enthusiastic every once in a while. 
Um, and so, uh, basically, new research suggests that there is a more direct connection between the brain and the gut than previously thought. Now, it had been thought for many years uh, that signals from the gut reached the brain basically via the uh, pathway of hormones. So you may have heard of the hormone ghrelin, which is uh, has been considered the uh, hormone that lets your brain know that you're full. Um, and it's basically, there have, there's been all this uh, sort of suggestion that because ghrelin takes a while to uh, figure out because your stomach takes a while to figure out that it's full and then to release ghrelin and then it takes a while to get to your brain that you should, you know, eat slowly and make sure that you're uh, giving your brain time to catch up to your stomach. And, you know, that might still be somewhat true. Uh, however, new research on mice suggests that there's a much faster communication link between the uh, gut and your brain. So basically, researchers used a rabies virus containing green fluorescence to trace a signal as it traveled from the intestines to the brain in mice. And so rather than that slow movement of hormonal signals moving out through the bloodstream and eventually getting to the brain, they saw a signal cross a single synapse in under 100 milliseconds. That's faster than the blink of an eye. Um, and so they were very surprised. Scientists talk about appetite in terms of minutes to hours. Here we are talking about seconds, said senior author Diego Pohorquez, an assistant professor of medicine at the Duke University of School of Medicine. That has profound implications for our understanding of appetite. Many of the appetite suppressants that have been developed target slow-acting hormones, not fa fast-acting synap synapses. And that's probably why most of them have failed. Bohorquez had noticed previously that lining the gut were sensory cells that shared many of the same features as those found on the tongue and in the nose. And so he suggested that these cells might be responsible for perceiving information in the same way. In 2015, he published a study showing that these gut cells actually contained nerve endings or synapses, which suggested a connection to the nervous system. This new study looked to map the circuitry connecting those cells to the nervous system. To begin the research, postdoctoral fellow Mile Maya Kalber filled the stomachs of mice with the green fluorescent virus. They then saw that the vagus nerve lit up and then the brainstem of the mice. This gave them direct evidence, or this gave them evidence of a direct link between the gut and the brain. Next, they grew sensory gut cells from mice in the same dish as vagal neurons. They were actually able to view the neurons crawling along the surface of the dish in order to connect to gut cells, and then they began firing signals. Adding sugar to the plate made the signals fire faster. Hypothesizing that glutamate, a neurotransmitter involved in other senses like taste and smell, might be involved, they then blocked the release of that compound in the gut cells 
and the neurotransmitters immediately ceased firing. And they actually have evidence which suggests in this case that the process will definitely be better be similar in humans because we've talked about the whole mice are not always perfect analogs, but they suspect that this is definitely going to be um, analogous in humans. We think these findings are going to be the biological basis of a new sense, Bohorquez says, one that serves as the entry point for how the brain knows when the stomach is full of food and calories. It brings legitimacy to the idea of the gut feeling as a sixth sense. Not quite sure about that, but uh, <laughs> the next step is to figure out how the new sense can discern the caloric value and nutrient components of our food. All right, so that is very interesting, um, but it is also time to take a break. And when we come back, we will talk um, about, again, some more uh, archaeology, because the past is much more fascinating than the future today. Um, so yeah, hang on for just a moment for some PSAs, and then we will talk some more about archaeology. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Hi, my name's Leo, and I use he, him, his pronouns. Hi, my name's AJ, and I use they, them, theirs pronouns. Did you know that sex is your biology and gender is how you identify? You can't assume someone's gender. Based on their clothes. Based on their hair. Based on their voice. Who they hang out with. Who they're attracted to. My gender isn't your business. Ask me my pronouns! Brought to you by the PVPA Student Group for Gender, Sexuality, and Diversity. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Drum and Bass with DJ Fife is on 8 o'clock on Saturday night. We roll from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock on 
Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, or online at valleyfreeradio.org. Join the 8 o'clock Drum and Bass Association by listening to Drum and Bass with DJ Fife, 8 to 10, Saturday nights. Fresh Sounds with your host, Ron Freshly, Tuesdays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. on WXOJLP, bringing you the music of Bud Powell, Wardell Gray, Art Blakey, Duke Ellington, Abby Lincoln, Tad Dameron, Yousef Latif, Bix Beiderbeck, Cassandra Wilson, Tom Harrell, Jane Ira Bloom, and thousands more. J-Rock with DJ Sakura is your weekly two-hour show devoted to rock music from Japan. Join me on Saturday nights, 10 p.m. to midnight. I'll be playing the very best and the newest J-Rock, J-Pop, J-Metal, VK, you name it, I'll play it as long as it's from Japan. Thank you. You are listening to Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM. I'm Mayor David Narkowitz, and I support Northampton's community radio station. Okay, we are back, and we are going to talk some more about archaeology. Um, well, this first one is actually much more uh, technology at the moment, but it's about an archaeological uh, specimen. So... Um, this story is about a new kind of CAT scan, which is being used by archaeologists to get a better look at a mummy's hand. <laughs> so uh, this is a kind of CAT scan called a phase contrast CAT scan um, or CAT scanner, and it's able to show microscopic scale images of soft tissue, uh, for instance, in human mummies. Now, in order to get these amazing pictures, the scanner detects the absorption and phase shift that happens when x-rays pass through a solid object. Um, and so phase shift is basically, um, if you've ever looked at a straw in a uh, glass of water and you see how it kind of has bent uh, in a weird way, even though you know it hasn't, that's because the light is... Um, the, the image and the light coming off of that image has had a phase shift between the air and the water. And so basically, it's the same thing between the air and the, uh, the um, flesh that the x-ray is hitting. And so the method has actually been available for around 10 years, uh, and it's particularly good at visualizing soft tissue. But of course, that has been mostly used, and in fact, pretty much exclusively used for the last 10 years for, you know, actual medical imaging. Um, so, you know, for sort of peering into uh, hearts and kidneys and lungs and things like that. Um, but of course, <laughs> there is always the possibility of using these kinds of imaging uh, techniques on um, archaeological objects, and especially on uh, very fragile human remains, because that's kind of the point is that you don't want to be doing invasive things on human remains for, you know, a variety of reasons. And so Jenny Romo and her colleagues at the KTH Royal Institute of Technology in Sweden scanned a mummified right hand dating to approximately 400 BCE 
which had been lent to them by the Museum of Mediterranean and Near Eastern Antiquities. The resulting images were basically amazing. (laughs) Uh, They were able to reach an estimated six to nine microns in resolution. Uh, That's a little bit wider than a human uh, um, blood cell, I think, uh, is what I've read about that. And basically, they were then able to visualize the mummy's blood vessels, uh, different layers of skin growth, uh, adipose or fat cells, and nerves. They could see all of those different things in this hand, this mummified hand um, from 400 BCE uh, using this technique. Just as conventional CT has become a standard procedure in the investigation of mummies and other ancient remains, we see phase contrast CT as a natural complement to the existing methods, said Rommel in a statement. We hope that phase contrast CT will find its way to the medical researchers and archaeologists who have long struggled to retrieve information from soft tissues and that a widespread use of the phase contrast method will lead to new discoveries in the field of paleopathology. Now, of course, anything that helps us visualize ancient remains, especially, again, without damaging them, is very exciting. And so I am hoping that this will be a uh, kind of technology that can be easily spread to uh, more places so that more uh, researchers and, of course, doctors as well um, can have access to it and can use it to really both do good things for living people and also find out more interesting things about Uh, our ancestors. Okay, so let's move from the micro scale to the macro scale. And let's talk about the ancient Maya once again. Now I've talked about this a little bit before, but uh, this is a sort of update and an expansion on something that uh, has been really exciting in the last couple of years. And so this is the uh, recent survey with LIDAR, uh, which if you haven't heard of this before, uh, LIDAR stands for Light Detection and Raging. I'm sorry, Ranging. Uh, And it is a, it's basically been a revolutionary tool in archaeology over the last decade or so. And it allows researchers to visualize remains beneath undergrowth and jungles. Basically what it does is that it creates a visual uh, plan of the landscape that strips away all of the vegetation to reveal a picture of what lies beneath. Um, And so it's a really powerful tool for use in places like uh, the lands of the ancient Maya, which are mostly uh, dense jungle at this point. And so what it does is that it fires a, um, an array of lasers towards the, um, towards the ground and it measures the reflected light from those targets. And so by being able to use these lasers, they cut right through the vegetation, right down to the lowest point that they can get to. Um, and so it's very, very cool. 
even though some earlier LIDAR studies had prepared us for this, just seeing the sheer quantity of ancient structures across the landscape was mind-boggling, Thomas Garrison, a co-author of the new study and an archaeologist at Ithaca College, told Gizmodo. I've been walking around the jungles of the Maya area for 20 years, but LIDAR showed me how much I hadn't seen. There were three to four times as many structures as I had imagined. One site that I work at, El Palmar, is now 40 times larger than we had thought. That's a totally different kind of place than what we had imagined, and it requires a totally new interpretation. So this is big. This is a big deal. The new survey has given insight into the demography, agriculture, and political economy of the lowland Maya civilization. Now, the Maya dominated this land for around 2,500 years, between 1000 BCE and, unfortunately, the arrival of the European conquistadors in the 16th century uh, CE. And so, at the greatest extent, the Maya Empire stretched across 36,000 square miles of what is now southern Mexico, Guatemala, and Belize. And so, the current survey looked at 828 square miles of northern Guatemala. And so, an international team led by Marcelo A. Canuto from Tulane University, mapped a dozen different areas which revealed Maya settlements and infrastructure previously unknown to the researchers. Overall, 61,480 structures were identified. Many were also ground-truthed, as we've talked about before, which is basically you go there and you see what's actually there, um, either on the ground or under the ocean, uh, depending. And uh, so they were able to determine that most of these hits are definitely real. And so uh, they actually have already done some new excavations uh, that were conducted between August and December of 2017. One of the most exciting structures found was a small pyramid complex right in the heart of downtown Tikal, said Garrison. While we still do not know much about this structure, the fact that LIDAR revealed a new pyramid in one of the most thoroughly mapped and understood cities is incredible and really highlights how powerful this technology is for archaeologists. They estimate that between 7 and 11 million people would have lived throughout the region during the late classical period between 650 and 800 CE. This means that a lot of the wetlands around the area must have been converted to agricultural use. And in fact, the area scanned revealed around 507 square miles of land that had been used for agriculture, with 150 square miles having been heavily modified bayos or uh, seasonal wetlands. And so another find was around 66 miles of causeways uh, or roads that would have connected the cities and towns. And most of those causeways are actually from an earlier period. Um, So as time went on, uh, the causeways between cities were less used because uh, later on, as we'll see, they uh, weren't so friendly (laughs) with each other um, anymore. 
But, uh, and so the scans also revealed a surprise, <laughs> extensive use of fortifications around many urban cities. The causeway networks that we see reflect an earlier time for the Maya, what we call pre-classic, when cities were linked by long roads running through the jungle landscape, said Garrison. In the classic period, the Maya were divided into dozens of competing city-states, each with their own local dynasty. It seems that part of maintaining these kingdoms involved investments in substantial infrastructure projects to integrate the population, uh, internal causeways, feed the people, extensive field systems, and protect the kingdom in defensive earthworks. Now, the earthworks were far more extensive than previously expected, and so they really do show a greater level of warfare among the different city-states. As an example, I work at the small kingdom of El Zots, the closest city to Tikal. LIDAR revealed an actual fortress on an escarpment edge between these two cities, according to Garrison. The citadel is protected by walls that are over 25 feet high, and there is an artif a large artificial reservoir that looks like an Olympic swimming pool. In other words, this place, named La Quernavilla, was ready for a siege. That is not really the type of conflict that we think about for the ancient Maya. Now, sorry, uh, Garrison notes that there are limits to the LIDAR pictures. Some hits do turn out to be natural and others are missed, but the vast majority are real hits of real things that they didn't know about before. And of course, another limitation is this fact that it is basically a flat uh, image in the sense that everything from all of the time periods is just shown there. There's no stratigraphy uh, in these plans from the LIDAR. And so they represent that full 2,000 years of Mayan civilization and civilization building. <laughs> and so it definitely will take time and a lot of ground truthing and a lot of excavations in order to determine which parts go with what part of uh, the stratigraphy of the entire uh, region. But pretty much the archaeologists are like, that is like the best problem to have. <laughs> they are perfectly okay with that being the problem that they have to deal with is the fact that, oh no, there's too, there are so many things that we have to look at that, uh, you know, it's going to take us a while to figure out where they go. Um, you know, these 64,000 hits. Um, so yeah, I don't think they're, they, from everything that I read, they were really not worried about that part of it. Um, so yeah, the uh, introduction of LIDAR into archaeology, especially archaeology in places that have uh, have been basically reclaimed by deep jungle, it's just it, the ability for this to change, to be a game changer cannot be underestimated. Um, it's just fantastic. Um, you know, I've, I've over the years looked at some of the, um, and seen some video even of the excavations at El Zotz 
And, you know, basically you can literally be standing next to something and you can't tell unless you actually go and pull away vegetation and find actual remains of Maya um, buildings. And even sometimes when someone says, you know, this is a Maya building and you look at it, it still doesn't look like a building because it is still basically just a uh, sort of uh, bare outcrop in the middle of a dense jungle. Um, so yeah, this is pretty amazing to be able to figure out where all of these things are. Okay, now let us actually stick with the Maya for a second. Um, and so this is disconnected from the previous uh, work. So this um, dig has been going on for several years already. Um, and so this is a sort of quote unquote regular excavation uh, in the jungles of northern Guatemala. And so this is in the ancient Maya city of La Corona. And so archaeologists have discovered a nearly 1500 year old stone altar covered in snakes. Now, this represents the oldest monument yet found at the site from the classical Maya period between 250 and 900 CE. The carvings on the altar tell the tale of how the powerful Ka'anu dynasty began its 200-year rule over much of the Maya lowlands. The discovery of this altar allows us to identify an entirely new king of La Corona who apparently had close political ties with the capital of the Ka'anu kingdom, Zibanche, and with the nearby city of El Peru, Waka. Marcelo Canutu, director of the Middle American Research Institute at Tulane University and co-director of the La Corona Regional Archaeological Project, said in a statement. Okay, so actually, uh, even though this is slightly different from the other um, work, uh, he is actually also um, tied to that other work, I just realized. Um, but this is, again, this is something that's been going on for some time. Now, the altar, a large slab of limestone, depicts the previously unknown king Chuck Took Ich Ak, carrying a double-headed serpent. The patron gods of the site are depicted as emerging out of the conjoined snakes. The animal is representative of the Ka'anul dynasty, which were also known as the Snake Kings. Um, the Maya had great names, <laughs> um, you know, like Two Jaguar. Um, you know, they, they had really evocative names for everything. Um, that is one thing that you have to give the Maya is they had great naming conventions. <laughs> um so next to this depiction is a column of hieroglyphics which show the end of the half Katoon period in the long count Maya calendar, which actually represents a specific date. They're able to, the Maya long count calendar has actually been deciphered so precisely that we can actually know that the, uh, rep that, that represents the date May 12th, 544, which is crazy to me. 
For several centuries during the classical period, the Ka'anu kings dominated much of the Maya lowlands. Tomas Barrientos, co-director of the project and director of the Center for Archaeological and Anthropological Research at the University of the Valley of Guatemala, said in a statement, <laughs> This altar contains information about their early strategies of expansion, demonstrating that La Corona played an important role in the process from the beginning. Now, they're actually really hoping that they will be able to learn more about this uh, city and about uh, these kings from this uh, tomb, because they are a little bit mysterious as to how they were able to keep this really big expanse of land uh, under their control. So we'll have to see if they are able to determine more things about it in the future. Okay. Let's talk about a different tomb, though. We're actually going to shift uh, away from the ancient Maya, and we're going to come back to sort of the uh, cradle of civilization area. And uh, we are going to talk about a recently discovered tomb that has a different kind of surprise for archaeologists. This is the discovery of a colorful mural in a Jordanian tomb, which offers a glimpse of everyday life in uh, what was once the city of Capitolius. Uh, and this is really cool. It basically uh, is a depiction of all these comic-like figures. Uh, and so there are hundreds of figures, humans, animals, gods. They're just all over. They fill these paintings. And what's cool about them is they actually demonstrate everyday activities, such as harvesting crops and uh, building walls in the city, which, of course, would have been a center of commerce and culture during the second century CE um, in order to have these kinds of really rich uh, tombs. Now, what makes this unique, though, is the fact that the murals are actually accompanied by dozens of inscriptions which appear next to the figures and describe the actions in the local language of Aramaic, uh, though uh, written in Greek letters. Um, they weren't going to get too crazy. <laughs> uh, so researchers from the French National Center for Scientific Research uh, suggest that they would have served the same purpose as speech bubbles in modern comics. The inscriptions are actually similar to speech bubbles in comic books because they describe the activity of the characters who offer explanations of what they are doing. For instance, I am cutting stone. Alas for me, I am dead. <laughs> Which is also extraordinary. John Baptiste Yon, a researcher with the History and Sources of Ancient Worlds Laboratory in France, told uh, CNRS... Now, the tomb was actually discovered back in 2016 in what is the modern town of Bayat Ross, um, and it contained two funeral chambers. And so paintings cover the walls and ceilings in the main room with nearly 260 characters and 60 inscriptions, most of which are well-preserved. 
Now, the scenes are meant to be as realistic as possible, with the hustle, bustle, and dangers of construction shown uh, with foremen organizing laborers, stonecutters climbing walls, and even real depictions of accidents, <laughs> as noted above. And so um, other tombs in the region also have been found with murals, but the detail and the use of Aramaic makes these new specials really quite unique. Um, and so it is very cool to be able to see these sorts of things out there. All right, let us wrap up with one more story. Uh, and this one is from space. So researchers have narrowed down the possible or origins of the space object. Umau Mau, uh, which was the first confirmed object from beyond our solar system. Data gathered in June suggested that it comes from one of just four stars. As the object passed close to the sun, it gained extra speed, as if it were a comet, which could have had ice or some other component that turned to water vapor, helping the object to speed up. And so by finding out this information, this let them adjust the trajectory for the object, which astronomers unfortunately only spotted as it was exiting our solar system. They then consulted data from the European Space Agency's Gaia mission in order to pinpoint the precise locations of stars and how their gravity might have tugged the object along its course. With these pieces of data, the researchers have four possible stars that could have been the origin of Oumuamua. And so that is a red dwarf, a sun-like star with two other contenders as well. Um, and so they believe that the object, the name of which means messenger from afar arriving first in Hawaiian, which is a great uh, phrase, and it's actually a fun word to say, definitely. Um, it must have come from a system with at least one large gas giant, which would have had the sufficient gravity to kick the object out of its home system. The one problem is, is that those four stars haven't yet uh, been found to have any planets. But of course, it's also difficult uh, to sometimes discern planets out there. So we'll have to see uh, if they find more specific information in the future. But it is really a cool object to talk about, not just because it has a great name, because it is the first confirmed object to have come through our solar system that we know came from another solar system, which is really cool. All right, that is it for me tonight. Uh, please do stay tuned for Civil Politics uh, coming up next. Have a great night. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro and thank you for listening.